Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, we're going to be talking about transcendental arguments, what they are, what this methodology um, is, what it can offer us, if anything, um, and then some criticisms of it. Uh, I have with me Dr. Adrian Barden, and uh, he, he wrote the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on this, so we're going to be uh, talking about that a little bit. Before we jump in, I want to thank the Patreon uh, supporters, the patrons. You guys are awesome. Um, really, really excited. I'm, I'm able to buy some new equipment because of some of you guys. Uh, and, and all of you are contributing and helping me. This is huge. Uh, if you guys have benefited from this podcast at all, please consider becoming a Patreon patron, a supporter. You can find the link in the description here or the audio. Um, another way is to go on YouTube, subscribe, leave, a, leave me some comments. Those always help. It helps the algorithms. AI are, are running our life, our lives now. So leave me a, a like and a comment, all that stuff, and then go to Apple Podcasts for uh, if you really like the show and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be huge. So without further ado, let's jump in on some transcendental arguments. What are they? What can they offer us? All that good stuff. So I'll bring uh, Dr. Barton in. Dr. Barton, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk about transcendental arguments, even though... Um, your current study has been on philosophy of time and and uh, science denial and other subjects. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, Parker. Um, you've got a lot of uh, really uh, awesome videos on your channel. Oh, and, thanks. Uh, they're, they're worth watching. Man, I really appreciate that. Um, well, I wanted to start off just by asking, how did you get into philosophy at all? Um, yeah, how did you end up becoming a, a professional philosopher? Oh, gosh. Uh well, my freshman year in college, my roommate was taking a philosophy class, and and he left a copy of Spinoza's Ethics sitting on the table. Wow! And uh, I picked it up. I was like a poli sci major, so I picked it up and I looked at it, and in, in about ten seconds, I, I I knew I was going to be a philosophy major and get a PhD in philosophy and teach philosophy. I, just, I didn't understand a word of it, but <laughs> I, I just knew that I just like wow! I I didn't realize you could just sort of think about, you know, the most fundamental questions about the universe and just like, you know, just try to tackle them, you know, get yeah. to sit down and start get to work on them. And uh, yeah, that, that seemed like the thing to do. Wow, man, that's, that's quite a story. Well, how'd you, um, it was, it was quick. Yeah. So, you're, so, so where'd you end up doing your, your PhD at? Uh, University of Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, what was your, your dissertation on? It was on uh, Kant's critique of pure reason, uh, oh. which, and the, his refutation of idealism specifically. So that relates both to issues about time and uh, transcendental arguments, because that's the argument form yeah. uh, uh, in Kant. Okay. Well, that's perfect then. Um, 
yeah, that really set the trajectory for your, for your life here. Why why did you pick that? Was that something your advisor uh, suggested, or did you already have an interest in in Kant? I was definitely already interested in Kant. Um, also, from the from the get go as an undergraduate, I read it. I didn't understand any of it, but it looked <laughs> like it was super interesting. Right. Um, and uh, I was always interested in time and our consciousness of time. It seems to me at the very at the very hard. If you're thinking about like your re- reality itself time is at the bottom of it. And if you're thinking about our connection with reality or our consciousness, it seems like time consciousness is at the bottom of that. Yeah. So I like to get to the bottom of things and it looks like time is time is where you want to be. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's really fascinating. I hope that we can get to some time uh, after, after dealing with transcendental arguments, especially because they're, they're connected like that in, in Kant's, in Kant's project. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you wrote the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy's uh, entry on time, or sorry, on uh, Transcendental Arguments. Right. Um, how did you come to study those? You, you talked about Kant and stuff, but how did you get, you know, picked as you're the Transcendental Argument guy? Well, how, though there, I started studying it in, in connection with Kant. Kant is, mm-hmm. Kant is the... Not not necessarily the ultimate progenitor of the argument form, but he certainly developed it. The argument form and is linked to it, you know, much more so than any other particular person you could name. Um, so the core arguments in the in the analytic section of the critique of pure reason, which is the section that I'm interested in, um, you know, many of them kind of more or less take the form of what we would now call a transcendental uh, argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did I wind up write, writing that encyclopedia yeah. article? I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. Um, either I might have proposed it or a friend of mine who also does Kant might have proposed it on my behalf. It was one of those two things. Okay, nice. Well, so before we get any further, maybe it's uh, it'd be best to define transcendental arguments. Can, can you help us out with, you know, what, what are these things? Okay. So transcendental arguments are anti-skeptical. Uh, now that that what, what's what we refer to by skepticism is going to cover a whole wide range of things. So let's take cl- our classic, you know, Cartesian external world skepticism, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we really know that there's things outside of us? So the transcendental argument um, approach to that, that skepticism would be to um, show or to demonstrate that the the skeptic is committed to something um, that. Uh, could not be the case. Usually this refers to some kind of like capacity or knowledge that you, that the skeptic agrees that he or she has. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of capacity, that cognitive capacity or knowledge would be impossible without the existence of those very things that the skeptic doubts. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now that then, so for other forms of skepticism that gets, uh, uh, that general form kind of gets applied, you know, you're skeptical about, you know, the, the possibility of rational argumentation or, or morality um, or, or consciousness. And then, but, but then you show that uh, the skeptic is committed to that, to something that um, somehow entails in a weird kind of modal sense of entailment, mm-hmm. a special kind, um, the, the existence of the very thing that is doubted. And then there's a there's a subcategory of this, which is what we call a performative um, a performative transcendental argument. Says that uh, which says that the very performance of the skepticism, the very articulation of the skepticism, actually itself demonstrates the falsity of the skeptical attitude. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. how's that so far? Well, that's great. And um, 
Your paper, uh, performative transcendental arguments, uh, and this is, a, this is something you worked on a long time ago, but it's it's been really helpful thinking through um, self falsifying statements, self stultifying, self reference type stuff. Um, so that's that's been really helpful uh, for me thinking through transcendental arguments and and even using some different language. All this language is so obscure. Like you, we were talking about offline, it's it's a really niche, niche uh, area of of philosophy here. Uh, I wonder if you could, well, maybe we could talk about a couple different transcendental arguments uh, to to give the listeners who are totally lost uh, some help. In in your article uh, in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you say uh, that the cogito, and that, that's why I have Descartes as our background. The cogito is a is a form of transcendental argument. Can you explain that? Um, your just the thought behind that, because most everyone will will know. I think, therefore, I am. We just it's it's in our culture now. Okay, so so Descartes says something along the lines of the meditation that um, I, I know that I exist anytime I consider the proposition as to whether or not I exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was uh, Jaco Hintika in the 70s was the first one to say that this kind of looks like a transcendental argument. Oh, wow. um, um, and uh it is. It is very like. I don't think. I don't think Descartes would really object to just slightly rephrasing that as saying like, okay, well, if I'm skeptical that I exist, um, I'm thereby committed to my own existence. Therefore, my skepticism is self-defeating. Yeah. Uh, the end. So that's a. It's that's a very simple one. Um, yeah. And. Um, yeah, whether or not it whether or not it works is another question. Right. Well, yeah, maybe we could say that. Like, do you do you think that's convincing? Do you think it's a, a transcendental argument that actually establish establishes what it sets out the the existence of of the thinker? Uh, I think I think um, I, I would probably go with, uh, and I want to say it's Bernard Williams on this one saying that. Well, if there's, I can I can I can show that if there's if I'm thinking or if I'm considering whether or not. I exist. I can conclude that thought is happening. Mm-hmm. There's some process happening. Now, now uh, to 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 go from thought to a thinker as this sort of metaphysical substance, especially in the Cartesian, you know, substantivalist, uh, you know, notion of the self. Yeah. That that seems to require further steps. Sure. Um, and uh, so so no, I, I I I don't think you get to go straight from thought to thinker. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So, so his transcendental argument though, it's, it's in that form would, would, you'd say would fail. Um, you also, so yeah. in your, in your I think, article, I think it's, I think it's, it, it, I think it fits in terms of the form. I think it, it, sure. it works as a, as an example of the form. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you've given some examples in that, that great paper performative transcendental arguments, uh, of different, uh, self falsifying statements and, and, uh, self stultifying stuff like that. So I took some shots here. Uh, some screenshots because I thought they were really helpful um, to think through. So another common one besides uh, besides Descartes' cogito is Aristotle's uh, right. proposed TA on, on non-contradiction. And, and some philosophers in the SCP um, have, have also considered this a tra- uh, transcendental argument. And, and you mentioned it here. So uh, I'll just quote really quick. The principle of non-contradiction is false. If true, there would be no reason to believe any thesis, including this one. So whenever affirmed, this proposition is either false or irrational. And that's from Aristotle's Metaphysics. Uh, what do you make of that? Is that a transcendental argument or is that just like a 
self-stultifying or self-falsifying statement. How, how would you categorize that one? I think you could. I think you could call it a an example of a transcendental argument. If you, it's just a matter of like phrasing. Mm, okay. um, if anytime you're sort of any any case where you're like trying to point out that someone who's skeptical about something is engaged in some kind of self-defeating or self-falsifying process. I mean, you can call that you can call that a transcendental argument, and you could you could write it up such that it sort of uh, meets that form. Okay. Um, I don't think it's necessary to use the phrase transcendental argument in, you know, looking at that statement on Aristotle's, uh, but it's, it's more interesting to look at the commonalities between that argument from Aristotle and some other kinds of anti-skeptical arguments. Yeah. And then we call sort of all of those fall under this sort of rubric that we could call the transcendental argument. Okay. Um, just out of curiosity, what do you make of, of Aristotle's reasoning there? Do you think that, we can like indirectly prove the law of non-contradiction or does that fail like, like Descartes? Well, th there's, there's a, there's a kind of a retort when, anytime you have this claim as to, you know, such and such skepticism is self-defeating. The skeptic mm -hmm. um, s seems to always have an alternative, which is just to ask, okay, what's, um, what's, what's your basis for claiming that the principle of non-contradiction is always in effect. Mm. And now, now you, you, the skeptic is not, does not have to assert the principle of non-contradiction is false. Indeed, that's not, that's really not, that would be a very kind of dogmatic uh, skepticism in the that's first true. place. It's a good point. It's more, you're more like questioning, you know, what the other person's, you know, um, uh, evidence is for something or the reason for holding it, the rationale mm. for holding it. And so, and so um, you don't have to get yourself into that, self-falsifying bind okay it, it is an odd thing to say yeah. to, to assert the principle of non-contradiction is false it, it it does get you and puts you in an odd place yeah, yeah. that that's a great point I, I don't know if i've ever really considered that that it's it's kind of this wooden skeptic that's maybe a straw man that's you know that's blanketly uh just making that statement which is easy to, to try and turn back on them, but usually they're asking a question. So I, I wonder, there's a, another one that I found in studying Augustine, uh, which seems like maybe Descartes just ripped this right from him, but De, uh, Augustine is, is talking with the academicians of his time who turn out to be skeptics to, you know, Plato's chagrin. I'm sure he's rolling in his grave because of that. But um, they, they say, you know, what if you're, uh, what if you're mistaken about all your beliefs? And that seems more like in line with what the skeptics are saying. And, and uh, if we're believing the testimony here, it is what they said from the, the academicians. And Augustine says, well, if I'm mistaken, then I still exist. So I can't be mistaken about that. See, fall or sum in the Latin. See, fall or sum. That's in De yeah. Trinitate, right? I think it, it might be from um, City of God, but I, I saw it in, uh, they had an excerpt in Against the Academicians. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, so it could be from De Trinitate, but, that one seems like it's successful to me uh, if because they're saying, look, you could be wrong about everything. And it's it's very, very close to, to Descartes. But he's saying, look, even if I'm wrong, I exist because I'm the one who's wrong. And to me, that seems like a successful TA. Um, but again, maybe it fails. Maybe there's it's, it, it reverts back to the there's thinking going on. What, what do you make of that one? Well, yeah, it's the same thing. And and if I if I was I was told I don't know the source on this. I was told that Descartes was accused of having ripped that off from Augustine. Okay, yeah, that that's out there somewhere, but I can't remember the source on that. That's uh, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, once again, you know, when, when he says, uh, you know, see fell or some, I, you know, if I err, I am. Mm-hmm. So I can't be wrong about my own existence. Therefore, I'm not wrong about everything. Okay. Um, therefore, the skeptic is wrong in saying that I can't know anything to be true. Right. I think that's the full elaboration of what's going on there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, when he says I am, once again, is he referring to some sort of, you know, sub, some, some, some kind of spiritual substance that endures through his different uh, mental states? Uh, that would be that would be um, a uh, inference that I wouldn't think he's entitled to. Um, right. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that getting to to full blown or some sort of of uh, substance dualism from there is an extra step and needs more arguments and stuff. But what what about just the existence of the self, like whatever we want to say that is, or we don't maybe we don't want to say anything about it. Just that I exist. I'm a thinking thing without saying anything about our substance. Um, there's, there's thinking going on. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to agree that I, I know for sure at any point when I'm considering whether or not there is thinking going on, um, I, I can be sure that there is thinking going on. So, yeah. Okay. So, so but when it, I, as, as Hume said, you know, when, but when I, well, what is that thing that thinks, let me reflect upon that. Well, I don't see anything, you know, when I ref, turned up, open my, the inner eye of introspection, I can't see anything except the, the thoughts themselves. Right. So it would be an extra step to say, well, you know, thinking's a property and properties, uh, there are no uninstantiated properties like that would, that'd be a, a few extra steps, I guess. Um, to get to like a, a yeah substance dualism, that's an that's an interesting line. I gotta chew on that one some more. Um, There's definitely some more steps required of some kind. Yeah. I don't know why thinking is a property, but for example, but okay. yes, you're, you're going to need a few more steps to get to Descartes, you know, spiritual entity. So could could you just say, well, thinking presupposes a, a thinker? You know, maybe it's a, another step in a transcendental. So it's a two step. No good. Well. I, well, I, I don't. It's not self-evident that thinking presupposes a, a thinker. Mm. Where once again, I think when you when you say when you're saying thinker, you mean some kind of substance that endures through and is identical through, uh, you know, one's lifetime or through the different thoughts that you're having. Okay. That's wonder, once again. That's what Hume says. Like you've got no, you have no basis for saying that. All you know is that there's thought, there's thinking going on. Hmm. Okay. I, I remember. You know, I remember certain experiences and I don't remember, you know, other people's experiences. So there's something special about the experiences that I recall mm-hmm. and I'm able to kind of string them together in a coherent way. Um, but again, there's this is sort of, sort of this sort of metaphysical, you know, spiritual realm where this sort of entity persists. I've got, I've got, I, I it's, it, I have a good reasons not, it's not a transcendental argument, but you know, empirical reasons for thinking that there's an sort of enduring physical item, mm-hmm. you know, the, the body, the that that thing endures. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, Dr. Barton, do you could you be mistaken that you exist then? Like, um, if, since this, you, you think this one fails, could you be mistaken that that you exist? Could someone prove to you that you don't exist? Well, well, what is the, what is the self like? It, could I be mistaken that a Cartesian self exists? Absolutely. Hmm. I don't. I don't even know what that thing is. Yeah. Um, I, I I positively don't believe in those things. Uh huh. Um, 
could uh, could I be mistaken that my my brain exists and is you know active in some way? Uh, maybe I guess now we're getting into some kind of brain in a vat or yeah, yeah. matrixy type stuff sure. right there. Yeah, or I'm an AI or something. Yeah, but if someone tried to convince you, this this is why I think that just the intuitive nature of the of of Descartes. If someone tried to convince you that you don't exist, they like you would still have to think about those thoughts. It's like something, whatever it is, whether you're a physicalist or a supernaturalist, or there's got to be a Doctor Barden that's uh that's thinking about those thoughts. So yeah, there's thinking going on, but. I don't know. Yeah, it's that. Well, that's, well if it, 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 it would be a matter of trying to convince you. Like, there's, there's no, no. You're mistaken. There is no thought process going on right, right now. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, that would that would be different. But saying, but saying, there, therefore, I am. Mm-hmm. And and once again, I think we're always we keep trying to like sneak in this this sort of Cartesian self here. Uh-huh. Um, I don't have any basis for thinking that thing exists at all, much less. Um, being having it be indubitable for me. Okay, but but someone could not convince you that there's thinking going on. For instance, at any time when I'm considering the the, the question as to whether or not there's thinking going on, mm-hmm. there must be thinking going on. Right. I'm I'm I, I, sure I'm on board with that. So that's indubitable in that moment when it's going on. Yeah, but of course that's not what Descartes said. Descartes right. says that I exist. Right. Yeah. And and when he says I, he had he had something very uh, very substantive, no sure. pun intended. Mine. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So that's helpful. Uh, maybe we can move on to. Uh, I don't know how to say this guy's name because it's it's German, but it's like Corner or Kurner or something. Do, do you know how to pronounce? Kurner. Kurner. I think is a, is a, it's approximately how you say it. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, we we talked about Stroud and and we can just we can touch on Stroud too. But uh, I don't know as much about Kerner's uh, um, uniqueness proof. And, and it's basically like he's, he's saying uh, you have to demonstrate like I think it, it's kind of like you, you take the conceptual uh, the conceptual line from uh, from Stroud's bifurcation of transcendental arguments into world directed and, and conceptual. And he says, OK, look, even if you have the conceptual TA, um, you uh. need this. You need a uniqueness proof to show that all of our human conceptual framework is is the same like why assume that you know Kant kind of assumed that we all have the same categories or at least that's the public uh the the uh caricature of them maybe that's true maybe it's not you're the you're the Kant guy um but why assume that we all have the the same belief system does that does that sound like it's uh, a fair um characterization of of Kerner's uniqueness objection in any, and I'm I'm cheating because I have my own encyclopedia article. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, okay, so so basically, the the uniqueness of conceptual framework problem has to do with the the inference inside any transcendental argument, mm-hmm. which is that um, I'm 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 thinking I'm thinking of something in a certain way, and that's only possible if such and such else is the case. Right. So putting this at the most general level. Okay. And that, but now, now, anytime you make that kind of inference, um, you're, you are, you know, implicitly saying that there, there's, there's only one way for this, um, uh, this uh, capacity that we have, or this knowledge that we have, or this thought that we're having, there's only one way for that to be possible. Right. 
Okay. Um, well, what makes you say that? Why can't there be, you know, other paths to um, that? Once again, the thought that we're having or the capacity that we have or the knowledge that we have. Yeah. So that in general is the, is the uniqueness problem. Does okay. that make sense? It does. And it, it's scary for, for anyone who wants to use a transcendental argument because it's such a strong claim that you're making such a strong, such a strong claim. And uh, Kerner just says, well, all we need is, is a counterexample or, or you, I think what he's, he's pushing back and saying like, prove, prove that universal, that we all have the same categories. I, I wonder um, if we could move just, just touching on Kant a little bit. A lot of these problems seem like they're turning Kant against themselves. Stroud's argument seems like it's turning Kant on himself. Uh, and this one might too, because as far as I know, Kant never gave a reason for why we all have the same categories of understanding. Um, from your study of Kant, making you go way back, does he ever provide a reason? Is that a problem for his for his philosophy that we all human beings have the same um, categories of thought? It, yeah, that's that is a problem in Kant. That's a, that's okay. a very deep problem in Kant. Um, now, setting aside, yeah, he's got his he's got twelve categories there, right. and let's let's set aside most of those. Okay, uh, too much to do all at once. Sure, <laughs> and let's fo- let's focus on the on the on the ones that he was he was actually he himself was actually most interested in, which are the categories of uh, substance and cause. Okay. Because he was inspired to the entire project by Hume and Hume's questioning of our ever being justified in making claims about causally related substances outside of us, right? much less ourselves as substances. So that gets, that gets to the, uh, uh, the time awareness issue. That's what, that's, that's why this is at the heart of Kant is this issue of um, our ability uh, to be aware of the the time of our own experiences, what you yeah. call you know subjective time awareness or subjective time determinations, and, and so this takes us to Kant's uh, refutation of idealism, mm-hmm. where where he argued that um, uh, so so I, I, I so here's the capacity that the skeptic agrees that we have right that, that the skeptic is committed to was that the skeptic has has a determinate order for his or her own experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, I think it's pretty plausible to say that there's no cognition, there's no coherent thinking at all, unless if you are thinking of your own experiences as, as, occurring, in, as occurring in a determinate temporal order. Okay. Okay, your own experiences, not stuff outside you yet. Right? Sure. Okay. But just like, I know, I, I know first I'm having this thought, and then I'm having this thought, and then I'm having this thought. Okay. Well, that that's, seems pretty basic to the, our ability to think or to think coherently about anything. Okay. Yeah. So Kant says, fine. Okay. So fine. So we want, we want some rock to stand on like that, that even the skeptic is, is committed to. So that's this. So Kant says, all right, can you agree with that? So fine. So, so then this gets um, to, so in the refutation uh, he says, well, that I, it's, it's precisely because Hume is right that I do not experience my own substantiality. Mm Mm-hmm. I can I cannot refer I, when I'm when I'm thinking of what something happened at this time and something happened at this time and something happened at this time, the only the only way for me to um, feel justified in assigning any kind of such order to things is if, is if I'm referring those thought events or experiential events to something else to something that is 
relatively permanent. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, but as he says in the refutation, but this permanent that I'm referring my own subjective experiences to cannot be me or in me because Hume is right. I don't, I don't, that's not part of my experience. I am not part of my experience. Yeah. But the only, my experience is just my experience is. There's no other thing that I'm aware of, not myself. So right. therefore, Kant says, the only way for me to even think, to get started in the process of thinking of my own experiences as occurring in a determinate time order is by referring them to something relatively permanent outside myself. Yeah. Okay. Now, so now we have stuff outside me, mm-hmm. relatively permanent substances outside me. And it's in furthermore, it's there um, when we bring in consonalogies, it's, it's the perceived causal relations between those things or the rules governing those things that tell me what order um, to put my own experiences in. Yeah. Right. Cause the order of my experiences is not the, or- is not the order of things in the world. Like I, I, I can remember something that happened 10 years ago and I don't think of that as happening, you know, now. Right. I think of it as something that I'm remembering that happened 10 years ago. I'm placing it in a time order, but the, t- the order in which I think about things is not, is not the order of the things of which I am thinking. Okay. So, in order to make that distinction between just the subjective flow of whatever's going through my head and what's really happening out in the real world is there has to be, there has to be a world and that world has to be different from my experiences. Okay. So now we have, so now what we're suggesting therefore is just because the skeptic is committed to being able to think of his or her own experiences as occurring in a subjective order The skeptic is therefore also committed to an external world of causally related substances, Uh, um, um, obeying, obeying, not just causally related, but obeying consistent causal laws. It's not a world of chaos. It has to be a world of law. Okay. So, so you see, that's the transcendental argument, right? Yep. And, and you see how you you see how it uh, basically is supposed to function. Yeah. Mm And it's actually it's actually really interesting because the, the the whole argument turns on the on Kant's concession that we do not uh, w- uh, he concedes with Hume to to Hume that we yeah. do not perceive ourselves as substances and um and furthermore we also don't perceive causal relations between uh things yeah right that those are that, that those those the causal laws that govern the world are somehow presupposed in just my ordering my own experiences in time mm-hmm yeah, that's really slick, and it's granting the the skeptic what what they want to start with, and then trying to show them, you know, hoisting them on their own petard. There, um, do you do you think that's successful? What? Yeah. No. Please. Okay. I don't think. It's okay. Successful. All right. <laughs> now, but has has Kant therefore demonstrated that external rea- an, a a a, a law like external reality really exists against the skeptic, mm. or? Has Kant simply shown that it's something that we must presuppose? Uh, and there's the Stroud coming through. This, this, and this is what was. This is where Stroud famously argued in the vicinity of 1979 or whatever that, whenever that book came out. Um, uh, Stroud argued that that's the best you can get out of this kind of argument. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that, so he thought, he thought you you can establish by, uh, by he, he, so he talked about modest. Transcendental arguments. The modest mm-hmm. transcendental arguments is where you're showing that something is conceptually presupposed, 
that something is uh, is is always is in is it's always in the back of your head. It's it's always something that um, you're supposing the truth of in order to perform some other to execute some other capacity on your part or to claim some other knowledge on your part. Yeah. Um, but that's the best you can do. You can't actually show that that thing is real. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's, so that's, so that's what he calls a modest transform. I have, a, I have another idea that there's, there's a third thing that might be more along the lines of what a lot of what Kant was trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, that, that can also be, um, successfully executed against the skeptic. Um, but, but I, I, uh, against against like the 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 uh, the ambitious transcendental arguments, I'm not I'm not I can't, don't think I can think of any examples where that where I be, would be prepared to endorse okay. the most Im- ambitious form. Yeah, and there's not many people I think now who would. Not many. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. So what so what's that third thing you, you were just mentioning? Oh well, I I've argued in a few different places. Uh, that um, one aspect of Kant's project is to show the applicability or legitimacy of certain core concepts that are employed in the natural sciences. So again, substance and causation are the t- key concepts there. Yeah. Um, one way of looking at a variety of um, uh, key philosophers. Let, let's let's let, let's just mention you know three major philosophers that Kant was thinking of: uh, Leibniz, Berkeley, and Hume. Okay. Each in their own way, they questioned the very uh, applicability or legitimacy of the concept of a material substance, mm-hmm. right? So for Barclay, they're ideas, right? Right. Leibniz is a monist. The only thing that really exists are minds, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and for Hume, it's we can sort of believe in those things all we like, but they're not actually judgments, right? We are, we are caused to believe things for, for, for Hume. Hume has, tells a psychological story about belief in things like material substance. Right. It's more like a knee jerk reaction that we believe in these things. Right? Is, is it like a, like a proto uh, epiphenomenalism? I always wondered about, about that. Like we're, we're caused to believe, have these beliefs, but we're not, and we're not actively shaping them. They happen to us. Why, why do you call that epiphenomenalism? Well, my understanding of epi- epiphenomenalism is that uh, that our thoughts, it's its like a trick. It's like we think that we're having thoughts and we can choose and make rational, you know, uh, make rational choices. Yeah. And, and yet underneath that, it's... Uh, it's not. It's it's um, we're, we're causally determined to think those things um, by material causes, not by. Uh, I, I think there's a form of causal determinism that is right, but not. Yeah, not I mean, material causes. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, so so Hume wanted to tell a causal story about belief. Okay. And judgment. Yeah. And it's you know basically a, a, you know yeah material determination. Yeah, he was certainly a determinist. Okay. Okay, so those um, are three three. Uh, okay, so so the up, so back to so back to that. So so what what I suggest is that Kant Kant is Kant um, talks about distinguishing between the quid juris and the quid facto, like what's the fact and and the entitlement. Yeah. Um, now, one of the key questions he thought with regard to our entitlement to think about things like you know are are objects real? Am I real? Are objects real? 
um, are there natural laws? Okay, so he was worried about these questions for sure. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but, but uh, a Barclay would say that, well, on a certain level, you know, Barclay called himself a realist, but everyone who reads Barclay, <laughs> nobody believes it. <laughs> We're really talking about ideas, yeah. says Barclay. So Barclay is the only person who thought of himself as a real. Okay, so um, uh, so we're really talking about ideas. So we never really even refer to material substances successfully. Like we're 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 making a, a mistake, a kind of category mistake. Mm. Um, same thing for Leibniz, in a, for totally different reasons, yeah. right? We're right. really always just talking about minds. Yeah. Monads, little monads. Right? Yeah, a bunch that's of all that exists is monads. Right, right. There's special, there's special monads, and there's less special monads. But that's that's all that's all that exists. Yeah. Um, so we're never kind of even successfully referring to things, you know, material things, material substances, right? So in in that sense, Kant was Kant was concerned not just with sort of establishing the existence against the Cartesian skeptic. The Cartesian skeptic has does not question that there could be such a thing. Yeah. As a material object. They just think that the, the Cartesian skeptic, not Descartes, but the Cartesian skeptic says, that, well, but we never really know that those things exist because we could be deceived or defective or dreaming or whatever. Right. Okay. But for, for, for Berkeley or for Leibniz, um, you, it's not that there couldn't ever have been such a thing, right? Those things don't even make any sense, right? There's no universe where there are material objects. Right. Rather, those people, and 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 for Hume, this is a totally different kind of a totally different story. But for Hume, there could never be any judgment um, on solid, you know, rational principles or on or on evidence that there are such things. Okay, right? indeed, indeed, indeed. I think for for Hume, you don't even really refer to them successfully because what you what what when you right like with causation, what cause what is causation for Hume? It's really just a feeling of expectation that you project out onto the world. Right, right. Right. It's no more real than color is real, right? Color is a feeling that you get when you see light reflecting at a certain wavelength and you sort of think it's like, oh, that thing is red, right? right. But, but there is no such too. thing as redness. It yeah. doesn't even make sense. You're making a category mistake when you say something is red mm -hmm. because redness is a feeling. It's not the sort of thing that, that an object can have. Mm. It's, not, it's not about being right or wrong. About about being mistaken about like you're like you know the lighting is weird and you thought something was red and it's really purple right no there is no such thing as color right mm -hmm. and so there's no such thing as as a substance either for Hume because substance is just this uh, kind of like lively connection of ideas if you if you get into the whole Hume story as to why we why we think there's substances right okay causation is just another kind of lively connection of ideas an expectation of one type of experience given a certain prior type of experience. So in, in a manner of speaking, for all of these thinkers, the, the, uh, the attribution of substantiality or causality to the world, you're making a kind of category mistake. Mm -hmm. You're attributing something to the world, not just that you're, you don't know that it has, but that it can't have. It's yeah. conceptually incoherent. I think it's a big part of Kant's project, and this is potentially successful on Kant's part. Okay. Is to show that is to show that these concepts are applicable to the world, that they're legitimate. Because why? Why would? And now this goes back to the whole the story about the whole about, about the refutation. Okay, you, yeah. we can read the refutation of idealism not as not as against a Cartesian skeptic, but as against this other kind of skeptic, who's questioning the legitimacy of the concept. If we can show, as Stroud says, you can do right that that the the notion of external material law like reality is presupposed. In the most basic cognitive um, 
operation that we do, which is ordering our own experiences in time. Yeah. Okay. If that's presupposed in that, then it, it can't be, a, it cannot be a, a category mistake. It cannot be conceptually incoherent to think about the world in that way. Why, why, why can't it be? Because we have to think about the world. That's the only way to think about the world. Yeah. So there is no other way to think about the world. It's the folks who question that who are who are being conceptually incoherent. They are yeah. committed to thinking Leibniz and Barclay and Hume are committed to thinking about the world that way. Although Hume actually would might even actually agree with that. But okay. but but so but so the so we might be able to establish through the more modest means, right? Yeah. The legitimacy of certain concepts. Legitimacy. Yeah. All right. Not necessarily their instantiation in reality, but but their legitimacy, and that is that that is and that is an accomplishment. Well, and it sounds like um, it sounds like an accomplishment, but it also sounds like that might help Kant around the problem of um, categories. Like, why do we all have the same categories? Well, because that's just what it means to think. And if you're going to think, then you're going to have to have at least those two categories that we're considering right now. And so there yes. is no problem of well, why, you know, why do you, Dr. Barden and Parker, why do you guys have the same categories? Because no, we're both thinkers. Yes, I, I think I think that you would, by extension, he would he would hope to tell that same story about all of his categories. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not going to I can't go through them one by one. I'm not, he didn't really go through them one by one necessarily either. Right. Uh, he really kind of honed in on the things he was obviously most concerned about was like substance and cause. Yeah. And then eventually things like freedom and morality and the self. Yeah. Um, uh, but those, yes, those are all along for the ride. And, and he would say generally that, that all those categories are, are, are somehow kind of necessary to the, to, to the thought process itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful. So um, you got me all intrigued about Kant now. So uh, he's got his 12 categories, but then he's also got, he's got time and space and those are not categories, right? And what, what does he call those? I forgot the, the language he used. Uh, forms of intuition. They're forms of experience. Forms all, of outer exper- all outer experience is spatial, and all experience, including inner experience, is temporal. Okay. And I wanted to, since since you've done some work on time as well, is there any kind of A theory or B theory in Kant? Does, is there any kind of theory of time in him, or is he just getting at like the experience, the personal experience of time? Okay, so so A theory and B theory. Uh, maybe I should explain to your viewers. Please. Yeah, be great. A, a little bit what you're referring to. <laughs> okay, so in, so in short, the the A series or A theory states that uh, uh, time dynamically passes, mm-hmm. um, and that there's a that, that there's also therefore a, a unique present, and that what is present and what events are present changes over time. Uh, so the B theory uh, uh, denies that. Uh, and and the B theory uh, says that there's such a thing as temporal uh, order, um, but in fact there's no unique present, and that all events have the same status. Um, this is consistent. By the way, this is uh, it's a long story. This is ent- entirely what uh, Einstein's theory of relativity says about the universe, and is broadly accepted, in fact, in in the in the world of physics, right. that we live in what's called a block universe, and um, from different um, in different frames of reference. Um, different uh, sets of events are simultaneous with each other, or are what we call, you know, or could, are present to our experience at that time. Um, so, so B theory states that there's there's a there's a there's a kind of temporal order out there, but there isn't there's no dynamic process happening out there that is the passage of time. Mm-hmm. 
so that's so that's 20th century stuff that that was not so it would be anachronistic to to say that Kant was really kind of focused on that distinction specifically i have i have written about what you could get out of kant on this topic though hmm. um i think that that um uh this uh, getting into kant's aesthetic the first major section of the critique of pure reason i think you could get out of kant um the idea that that um the passage of time is presupposed in our um in our manner of thinking in our in our way of uh, putting ideas together Mm-hmm. And and in our in our self sort of self conception of our own experience, and this goes to um, this by the way goes to uh, Kasim Kasam, who I know you've had on your yeah. show has a, has a, a a very nice book where he, where he 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 talks about this in relation to Kant that um, it would be difficult to imagine how we could make sense out of our own experience unless we thought of ourselves as being limited spatially and temporally to what we can sort of what what is available to us at any given moment yeah um and so this this is straight out this is straight out of uh uh kasam's uh, mind and world which is a lovely book yeah uh and and uh so that would include i think this notion that so so time dynamically passes or, or sorry, the, presupp- the presupposition that time dynamically passes um, is part of our just our way of thinking about our own experience. Yeah. Because if we thought that all of time was available to us all the time, and there were no limitations on that, there would be no way for us to take any set of um, mental contents that we have and make any sense of the world out of them. Yeah. Right. So does our self conception is kind of limited. And same thing for space. Right. If I could see all everything in the universe all at once and every moment in the universe all at once, well, I I couldn't figure out what's happening right now. What am I supposed to do right now? Yeah, is it time for is it time for lunch? I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, does that mean that he uh, the phenomenal noumenal distinction, right? So, so in in our phenomenal understanding of the world, we do have a, a temporal passage of time, like an atheist. But does that leave it open that it it might be B theory? in the noumena or it might be a theory that we just don't have the epistemic uh, access or something. I, I think all I, all I, all I've said in representing Khan is talking about what, what we're presupposing when we sort of represent our own experience. I, I, I strongly, uh, I, I'm totally reject the, the a theory uh, just based on what I know about uh, physics. I think it's rather conclusively uh, um indicates that that uh, this the a theory is wrong there's also just tremendous when, when you get into that there's tremendous like logical problems with actually thinking of the world as as being uh, you know a theoretic as being dynamic in that way um as as shown by people like uh, parmenides way back in the day the pre-socratic uh, up through uh you know mctaggart the famous early 20th century um philosopher um uh, so I'm I'm entirely on board with uh, what we call B theory, and the and the block universe. I'm also, but but that's consistent with saying that I can't help but think about the world in dynamic terms. That that's the way I'm so constituted. Those two things are consistent. Okay. Um, but that's once again that's so. This is a modest. This 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 is a a modest claim in the sense of the modest transcendental argument. This is what's presupposed by my way of thinking about my own experience but it's it would be a different thing to say that i therefore have proven that the world must be set that way right yeah is there is there any way to know 
No, it's it's hard to know how to how far to take Kant, right? Is there any way to 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 get to the thing in itself? Do we are we able to see past our conceptual framework at all to the the real world? Is there able like if if we if the uh, a theory a theoretic um, view of time is what's presupposed? How can we ever get past and say? But actually, in reality, it's it's B theory. Physics is is right. Ah, well, indeed, that's a super deep question. And uh, yeah, and, and Kant, you, you know, Kant, like many things, he wasn't the first one to make this distinction between you know, the world as we know it and the world as it is in itself. And and to have noted that, well, if the world, if if the world, whenever I refer to the world as the world as I conceive of it, how can I possibly even ask the question, well, what is the world like when I abstract away from the conditions under which I, I experience and conceive right. of it? Mm-hmm. Um, I sure don't see how we, you know, by definition, you can't meaningfully talk about the world as it is in itself, right? Okay. The world as it is in itself, by definition, is that which you can't talk about. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if yeah. you could talk about it, then it would be the phenomenal world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and, that, and that, the, the really interesting thing that I think that comes out of that is this difference is the issue of um, scientific realism versus scientific instrumentalism. Yes. Okay. So, so scientific realism is, is the view that when we talk about things like uh, electrons and natural laws, that, that we're actually describing the world simpliciter, right? We're, we're dr- yeah. describing the world as it is in itself. Mm-hmm. And scientific instrumentalism is that, well, the best you can ever do is kind of make a model you know, make predictions on the basis of that model of the world. And, and there could, and, and, uh, and those predictions might be good or bad, might work out or might not work out. In that case, you got a good model, but there, there would, in that, in principle, there'd always, there'd always be alternative models describing different laws and different entities out there that might in principle work out just as well as your model. So in other words, there's never some final description of the universe as it is in itself. Right. And and I, I it's very hard to see how to maintain the the strong realist view of our you know scientific description of reality you know given you know the kinds of concerns that Kant is raising I think there are, there's a you know whenever we picture the world we're picturing it in a certain way and there's certain like you know conceptual presuppositions and there's a, there's a way for us to interact with the world and that's always going to be part of an essential part of our description of the world. Right. right. And you can't step outside of that. I, 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 yeah. I don't uh, know how to get it from that. Yeah, I, it's crazy. Yeah. I think it's right. And uh, some of us think about this when we're kids and we're like, how can I ever think about some, the world from over there in the corner or outside my perspective, you know? And um, I think it's interesting too, because people today will say, you know, um, well, ducks use electromagnetism and that's how they can migrate to the same spot every year. And it's like, Oh, that's cool. So look, the world is, uh, you know, there's a numinal world out there and you go, yeah, but that you just told me that. And I was able to think of that. So that's still in the phenomenal realm. Like you haven't just because you've gotten to uh, infrared light or electromagnetism or some other sense that an animal has that I don't. If I'm able to conceive of that, isn't that still in the phenomenal? We haven't gotten past or or have we maybe have we gotten past uh, knowing that sharks use different senses and stuff? Is that is that I, into the I can, in itself? Well, yeah. but I, when you, right, when you imagine though, well, what's it like, what is it like to be a bat? You know, what is it like to be a shark? What is it like <laughs> to be a duck? You know, it's always going to be in our experiential terms. You know, it's, yeah. if you imagine like, what is, what does magnetism feel like? 
well, the best you can do is going to be some kind of a hum or some kind of light or something that you're familiar with, right? Right. I can imagine myself in another time and space. I can imagine being you right now in Illinois looking at a computer screen. Yeah. And, and uh, with a much more impressive backdrop than I have in my office. <laughs> Thank you. I said a lovely gilded books you got there. Um, uh, so I can, I, but, but that's, that's in, you know, spatiotemporal terms that I'm familiar with. Right. Um, you know, that's all drawing on experience that I've had. Um, so when it gets to, you, you know, and I can imagine much more, more being in the point of view of much more extravagant things, but uh, it's always going to, there's always going to be kind of this, yeah, this sort of conceptual, uh, as Kant would say, you know, like whatever is, it's all going to be whatever, is in my mind, it's going to like be under these categories, you know, right. I'm going to be telling it, there's going to be substance, there's going to be cause, there's going to be a modal, it's going to be, I'm going to be either imagining something necessary or possible or hypothetical, you know, it's going to be, it's going to have a certain qualitative aspect, to have, it's going to have a certain quantitative aspect to it. I'm running through a lot of Kant's categories. Yeah, we're, we're getting them. I, you, you said you weren't going to go there, but I got you to go through yeah, well, categories so anyways. I don't know if there had to be exactly those 12 or something. Right. He was really obsessed with the number 12. Yeah, he was. But, but, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, for a lot of those things, at least, it, look, it looks like, well, that, that's a, these are basic kind of conceptual building blocks uh, for uh, thought and experience. Yeah. Um, so for, for thought, yes. And then the spatiotemporal part goes to, well, if you want to make it experiential, it's going to be spatiotemporal. And the categories are going to be organizing uh, or going to be contributing to your spatiotemporal picture, but it's always going to be space and time and modality and causation. And uh, yeah, there's no way to agree. Well, what's the world like without that stuff? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just not, not going to happen. Yeah. To even think about that because thought presupposes yeah. these others. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And, um, and, the, and the, the, the big implications as Kant was his, his whole, his main concern was natural science here, at least in the first two sections of the critique of pure reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are the implications for science? I think that's, that's what's really interesting here. Yeah. Do you, does, does, um, if you were to follow Kant, would you be a scientific operationalist? Is, would, would, is that like where you're an where instrumentalist you're instrumentalist? Sorry. Yeah. I don't see any alternative. Okay. Okay. A lot of a lot of scientists and indeed philosophers of science don't like that. No. Yeah. I can it's, see. It's, it's there, there's real uh, dissent about that. I, I just I don't see how you can be a full on uh, realist in, in that in that sense of scientific realism. Well, if you were to pitch it as like um, uh, instrumentalism is not. It's just cutting off the the noumena. It's cutting out, and the noumena is not interpretable because it doesn't have what we just talked about. You know, it doesn't have these categories of thought. So, yeah, if if you have a problem, uh, if you're if you're committed to scientific realism, you think, well, now you're an anti-realist or something like that. You're you're leaving us in skepticism. Well, yeah, sure, I'm leaving us in skepticism about the noumenal realm, which is not able to be thought about, which doesn't seem like that that big of a deal. That is that is actually exactly what Kant says. Okay. He says, he says, I'm not an idealist. I'm a transcendental idealist, uh -huh. which means I'm an idealist about what transcends any possible experience, right? Yeah. I'm an idealist in terms of talking about that. But I'm an empirical realist, he said. Yeah. I'm a realist about the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. You know, think of that phrase as all hyphenated, the world as we know it. Yeah, sure. Okay? But so, uh, and that the world as we know it is categorical and it's spatiotemporal, right? Right. 
But that's the world that that science is describing. Right. It's not trying to describe some other world, you know, God's realm or whatever, uh-huh. whatever yeah. transcendent realm that is. Right. It's, it's describing the world as we know it. And it's and it can be either successful or unsuccessful at doing that. Yeah. You know, do you make a model that uh, makes successful predictions? Um, have you successfully captured all the phenomena you're trying to capture? You, we have these criteria for success here. Yeah. And uh, uh, so that, uh, uh, so says, yeah, yeah, I'm a realist. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we win. Uh, the skeptic is, de- is defeated. Yeah. That's, I've never thought about transcendental idealism in this way before. You, you really opened up my eyes towards this because I've always thought, you know, yeah, it's it's a popular canard of of Kant saying, you know, he's he's uh, replaced one form of skepticism with another because transcendental idealism doesn't really tell us about the world. But when you pitch it like this, it's like it tells us about the world that you are able to experience, which is what you can't escape from anyways. So you maybe. I don't know. I thought that that's really interesting. And you definitely uh, illumined uh, me on Kant right now. This is, I'm going to have to go back and read the critique again, man. This is a whole different perspective for me. Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, that was, that was the whole uh, strategy there. And I mean, his critics from the, from the, from the beginning, his critics says, no, this is just idealism again. Right. And, uh, but, but that was the whole, that was what he was, that that was his fundamental strategy. Yeah. It was to drive that wedge between the, like the hard idealists Right, and the more like pragmatic, pragmatic idealists. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if I'm not mistaken, then there is at least one transcendental argument which is conceptual, which does work and it, and it succeeds. It's it's worth it's uh, valuable to us, right? Like his transcendental re- refutation of of idealism. I think it. I think it arguably may be successful at establishing a certain conceptual presupposition. Okay. Um, which in turn, if you buy the, the, the empirical realism, transcendental idealism distinction would entitle you to describe the world as actually being a law, like, uh, you know, a law, like world of material substances. Yeah. If you, if you say it all, say it all that way, <laughs> that's quite then, a thing then, to say. Then maybe so. Okay. Um, but it's not, it's not at all kind of like, um, it's not, it's not, it, it, it's a, it's not exactly what the sort of ambitious yeah. anti-Cartesian, um, see, see, Dick, he had a problem with Descartes. He thought that Descartes demand was the wrong demand in the first place. Descartes wanted to, to wanted to, knowledge. If we were going to have knowledge of the world, it would have to be the knowledge of the world as it is in itself. Right. And he yeah. thought that that was the wrong demand. So he's not answering that demand. If that's what you, if that's what you want, then you're not going to get that. Okay. But that was, but that, but he would argue that that was the wrong question in the first place. Yeah. Um, just as as we close up here and we touch back on Descartes, I've always been interested, uh, interested, and kind of confused about um, what Kant means when he says, you know, every thought like presupposes the I, or or has I forgot the exact language. Do you, do you know what I'm referring to? In in Kant. In Kant. It- uh, every thought proposes. Oh, the I. Oh, right. Okay. The I, yes, right. This is in the the um the I think is yeah. That's in the the I think. Deduction. Sorry. Yeah. The, the the I think. Right. Right. The I think. And to me, I'm like, what? Well, that, yeah. that seems like it resonates with the the cogito, but I guess Kant said you can't like know the self. It's a transcendental unity of our perception or something maybe. But is is that the difference in that uh, Descartes thought he you could know the I and Kant said no, it's presupposed, but you can't know it. 
Kant was Kant was very consciously distinguishing himself from Descartes. There. Right. Right. Um, that the the I think is is a um, it, it's it's thinkable but not experienceable. It is it is a noumenal self. Yes. Okay. Okay. And and it and it's presupposed. It's not something that is ex- ex- experienced. It's not something that can be sort of like proven through some kind of like weird metaphysical uh, deduction. Indeed, indeed, you don't do it. You need a transcendental deduction. Sure. That that you're showing that it's a conceptual presupposition of experience itself. I, in order for me to make sense of my own experience, just as I was saying about spatial and spatial space and time, in order to make, make sense of my own experience, I sort of have to think of myself as an enduring through my experiences, okay. as, as an entity, as an experiencing entity. I have to think of of, 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 of thoughts. I can't think of thoughts as free flowing. I have to attach them to a thinker. Yeah, that's that's not the same thing as proving that. The Cartesian self exists. Is it and just he, a, he would be very careful to say that he had not, he was not claiming to have done that. And that's so I know that he was distinguishing from Descartes, but it right there, it sounds like you're taking the weakened version of Descartes, there's thinking going on, and saying, well, you know, Kant said if there's thinking going on, there's a thinker, right? And that it's just super confusing for me because it seems like he's, if you take those two in conjunction, then you you have proven the self. I totally, I'm totally wrong here. Not the self as a member of the world. Uh, yes, because it's in the, the noumena. Yeah. Descartes, Descartes wanted a substantial self. Like the sure. self is like there. It's not, I'm not sure if it's in space or not for Descartes. I've always been confused about that. Yeah, I'm not sure he really, I'm not sure he really thought that through either. But Maybe not, maybe not. It's like it's there in the world. Like the self is like a thing. Uh-huh. I mean, he was a strong, you know, uh, substance dualist. Yeah. And and that the count the count would be very careful to distinguish what he's doing from that, right? He's saying like it's like it's it's more like a concept, yeah, that must be presupposed in the thought of experience itself. Mm-hmm. Very different from saying like I've established that there is a thing in the world, sure, that will furthermore you know exist after I die. He later on he talks about how I can hope for that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get to the uh, end, is that of the, the third? Critique. Is that the third critique, or is that still the first? It's the third section of the first critique. That's okay. it, it's in the it's in the transcendental dialectic and the canon of pure reason. Okay. Yeah, I got I got some homework now. I got to go back and yeah. And then, but then he he really needs that because that that's how he gets. Uh, we have to be able to hope or conceive of libertarian freedom, and then his whole moral um, his whole uh, uh, moral theory depends on the possibility or the conceivability of libertarian freedom. Yeah. So a lot is a lot is resting on that tenuous non-substantial i think yeah a lot is resting wow man. ultimately yeah well dr barton this has been huge man i appreciate you so much um for going back to transcendental arguments that um you've, you've done work on in the past and thanks for for recalling that and then uh yeah thanks for sharing more about uh your study on kant and some time uh yeah maybe maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about your your more current work in time that'd be fascinating too time freaks me out it really like blows my mind it's insane. And everyone on on both sides, A theorists and B theorists, always think the other ones are crazy. You guys like you're always like, well, A theory is crazy. And you've said a little bit here, but the A theorists think that the B theorists are, are insane and that there's not a that the self is like this worm thing stretched across. You know, and then yeah. it's crazy. And I'm in the middle here trying to make sense of all this while you guys are throwing grenades. So it would be great to have you back on to to talk about time and, and help me think through this. Uh well, anytime. It's it's really been fun, Parker. 
Awesome. All right. Well, um, that's going to have to do it, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.